The Seven Practices of Effective Ministry by Andy Stanley, Reggie Joyner, and Lane Jones. Preface, A New Season. Every Monday morning at 8, I sit down with our staff leadership team at North Point Community Church for a time of learning. These are valuable times, and honestly, they are often frustrating times. Frustrating because we are forced to look beyond where we are to where we could and should be as an organization. These are the discussions that, in terms of programming, lead to new beginnings and untimely deaths. The debate is unfiltered. At times, it gets personal. We've all lost our cool at one time or another. I'm not always right, and there are mornings when it seems like we are wasting everybody's time. But we continue to meet. We continue to harness our differences for the sake of synergy. Consequently, we continue to learn and grow together. Over and over, it is the seven practices described in this book that have enabled us to punch through the fog of information and emotion. It is our commitment to these seven guidelines that has enabled us to find clarity and make the tough calls. These seven principles provide the context for all of our discussions and decisions. Dozens of wonderful books have been written for church leaders on how to increase attendance, develop programming, or disciple people. This is not one of those books. The Seven Practices of Effective Ministry is not so much about what to do as it is about what to ask. This book will not tell you how to implement programs, but it will provide you with a new lens through which to evaluate your current programs and any you may be considering. You will find no new strategy hidden in these pages, but as you embrace each of these seven practices, your ministry cannot help but become more strategic in everything it does. Practices, not programs. The seven practices are just that, practices. These are not new program ideas. You don't have to be in church work long to discover that there are no one-size-fits-all programs. Ministry is more art than science, and our ever-changing culture makes it necessary to constantly evaluate, launch, and occasionally even kill programming. The seven practices are designed to provide a template that will help you determine which programs to start what to stop, and how to improve what's working. When implemented properly, these practices will energize every facet of your ministry. So, what are these seven practices? Number one, clarify the win. It is impossible to know if you are making progress if you are not clear about your destination. This means examining each and every event and program and asking the question, When all is said and done, what is it we want to look back on and celebrate? Number two, think steps, not programs. Your programs should take people somewhere, not simply filling up their time. Ask yourself, where do we want our people to be? What do we want them to become? Is our programming designed to take them there? Number three, narrow the focus. Focus is the key to achieving excellence and making an impact. Each ministry environment should be designed to do no more than one or two things well. Number four, teach less for more. The less you say, the more you will communicate. You will be more effective at every level of your organization if you say only what you need to say to the people who need to hear it. Number five, listen to outsiders. The needs and interests of insiders have a tendency to determine the agenda for the organization. This is especially true of the church. Focus your efforts on those you're trying to reach rather than on those you're trying to keep. Number six, replace yourself. 
One day, someone else will be doing what you are doing. Whether you have an exit strategy or not, ultimately, you will exit. So embrace the inevitable and prepare now for the future. Number seven, work on it. To maintain your relevance, your sanity, and your effectiveness, you must carve out time in your schedule to step back and evaluate what you are doing and how you are doing it. Notice something missing? Conspicuously absent here is any discussion about prayer, the Holy Spirit, and dependence on God. Though absent from the book, these things are certainly not absent from the culture of North Point or any other healthy church. In fact, the seven practices have proven an answer to our fervent prayers as we sought to create a church that reflects the mission of our Savior. We are convinced that these practices are practical expressions of how the Holy Spirit has chosen to work through the local church, and we have come to depend more on God and less on ourselves as these practices have forced us to let go of some comfortable yet ineffective approaches to ministry. Play ball. As you're about to discover, this book is divided into two sections. It begins with a story written by Lane Jones, one of North Point's original six staff members, The narrative focuses on a pastor who plays hooky from an elders meeting to attend a major league baseball game. That evening, within the context of that single game of baseball, the pastor discovers seven principles that form the basis of the seven practices. In the second half of the book, another of our original staff members, Reggie Joyner, will delve more deeply into each of the seven practices. He will also share a few pages from North Point's playbook, to let you see how these practices have been put into action in a ministry setting. Speaking on behalf of our entire team, we can tell you from experience that these principles work. If you are reading this book alone, I suggest you read it straight through. If you are working through these pages as a team, my recommendation is that you first read a chapter of the parable, then read and discuss the corresponding chapter in the second section. This will give your team an opportunity to evaluate your current ministry environments within the context of each of the seven practices. Consider this book your ministry's own spring training. As you begin this new season in your ministry and begin to establish each of the seven practices on your team, you will soon find that together you are able to create extraordinary ministry environments, environments that will make your church irresistible to believers and unbelievers alike. Andy Stanley Part 1. Getting in the Game. Ray's Story. Chapter 1. The Best Laid Plans. The northbound traffic on the Meadowland Parkway was bumper to bumper. Cars, vans, and SUVs crammed with people of all shapes and sizes moved slowly towards Visiontel Stadium. Children clutching pennants and baseball gloves and hopes of catching a miraculous foul ball anxiously waited for their cars to inch ahead. This evening's game was a sellout, and the fans were out in full force. Everyone with a ticket at today's game was pumped. Everyone except Ray Martin. Ray was southbound on the parkway. He had passed the stadium on his right. He glanced down at the ticket on his seat next to him. It was a gift from a friend who had connections with the team, a friend he would soon have to call with bad news. Ray had planned the perfect day. Church in the morning, first pitch at 1 p.m., and back to church that night for a board meeting. That was before a nine-game winning streak landed his team in first place, and ESPN selected this game as their Sunday night game of the week. As a result, the game time had been moved to 8 o'clock, 
So now, instead of an afternoon of baseball, he was headed for an evening of bedlam at the meeting of the board of the Meadowland Community Church. Ray's eyes narrowed and his forehead creased as he glanced at the northbound lanes of traffic headed to his game. Who could blame him for being upset? No one in their right mind would choose a board meeting over a pitching duel between two potential Cy Young winners. Ray had no reason for feeling guilty. Not even the pastor would blame him for wanting to go to the game. Unfortunately for Ray, he was the pastor. Ray had pastored Meadowland for 10 years, and until recently he had never thought of his circumstance as unfortunate. In fact, Ray was the founding pastor. He and he alone was responsible for the church's fate, or at least it felt that way. Lost in his thoughts, Ray barely heard his cell phone ringing. He grabbed it just before it went to voicemail. This is Ray, he said. Are you ready for the great game? The voice on the other end asked. It was Joe Dickinson, the friend who had given him the ticket. Oh, hi, Joe. I was about to call you about the game. From the sound of your voice, I'd say you aren't too excited about it, Joe said, interrupting him. Let's just say the evening doesn't look too promising. Doesn't look promising, Joe said. This could be the game of the year. Yeah, well, I wasn't sure how I was going to tell you this, but I can't go to the game, Joe. I have a board meeting at the church, and with the new game time, I just can't make it. I was afraid of that, Joe said. Listen, I know it's tough for you to do. But I think you'll be glad you skipped the meeting and went to this game. I'd skip this meeting for a root canal, Ray thought. Well, you're probably right, but there's a lot going on right now, and I'd better be there, he said dutifully. Well, you do what you have to do, Joe said. Thanks for the thought, Joe. I'll try to find someone to use the ticket, Ray offered. No, you keep the ticket. I really believe that you and the church will be better off if you go to the game. So, we'll just see what happens. I'll talk to you later. Bye, Ray. Ray was puzzled by his friend's comment, and it added to his growing sense of resentment about the board meeting. It wasn't too long ago that the excitement level Ray felt over a baseball game was dwarfed by the excitement of leading Meadowland, but not anymore. In all honesty, it wasn't that he wanted to go to the game as much as he didn't want to go to the church. Ray was headed south in more ways than one. Ray and his wife Sally, along with 12 others, had begun the church in a nearby home. Their vision was pure and simple, to introduce people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. More than a vision, it was a passion. Ray met Sally while he was in seminary. She was a school teacher, and he loved her enthusiasm for changing young lives. She loved his single-mindedness and the passion he had for reaching people for Christ. Together, they would change the world, or at least their corner of it. That was before things got so complicated. It wasn't that Meadowland was a failure as a church. As their area of town exploded, so did their attendance. In 10 years, the church had grown from a handful of members to over 300. They had to be doing something right. If only Ray knew what it was. It's not that he didn't know what he was doing. Ray was a good speaker, and he knew how to run a church. He just had a nagging sense that lately the church had begun to run him. Their biggest growth had happened in year three when the church opened its new building. Along with the people had come a mortgage and a building committee. Finances, which were always important, became the primary focus of Ray's world. 
With the building came a ball field and a recreation ministry that just made sense and also made some much-needed money. Year four brought a successful Mother's Day out program to generate revenue for the new building and, after all, would reach the community as well. From there, it was a small step to a full preschool and kindergarten program in year five, and their success had led to the topic for tonight's board meeting, a new elementary school. In ten short years, Ray had become a pastor, a financer, a recreation director, and now perhaps a principal. What he didn't know was how or why he had become all of those things. The elementary school was the brainchild of Rick Stevens. Rick was a young up-and-comer in the community who had plenty of great ideas about what other people should do. This was never more true than at church. It wasn't that his ideas were bad. In fact, they were often quite good. But with them came a sense that Rick had his own agenda. Interestingly enough, he had a set of twins moving into kindergarten. Rick would be at tonight's meeting. Doesn't the school make sense in the grand scheme of things, Ray had been asked? Why let all those Sunday school rooms sit empty during the week? Won't the kindergarten graduates need a good school to go to? Won't it bring in more people from the community? But who's going to hire all those teachers, he thought, and who's going to select the curriculum? Who's going to schedule the fire drills and run the PTA? Ray knew whom that who was, and it wasn't Rick. The who was him, and Ray could feel it in the pit of his stomach. The traffic to the game stretched out across from him as a nagging reminder that his day had been ruined. A day of relaxing fun had become a Maylock's moment. Why shouldn't I get to go to the game, he thought. Is it my fault they moved the game time? Is it my fault Rick had to have a school? I've missed board meetings before. There was that time I went on a missions trip. And the time Sally was in labor. We always survive. Besides, this was going to be a great game. Don't I deserve a life? Where is it written that the pastor can't enjoy himself a little now and then? Ray's stomach lurched as he thought about adding another large leadership helping to his already full plate. How could he keep all those balls in the air? Sally and the kids would suffer. His preaching would surely suffer. The rest of the church would probably suffer too. If only he didn't have to go to this meeting. If only Rick didn't have children. If only Ray could turn the car around and head for the game. There was his chance. A cut in the medium that offered him the opportunity of escape. All it would take is a turn of the steering wheel and he'd be free. One turn and anguish would become ecstasy. One turn and suddenly Ray was northbound on the Meadowland Parkway. It took him a moment to realize what he had done. The car horn behind him blasted him back to reality. His was now one of hundreds of automobiles headed for the ballpark. You can't do this, Ray's conscious screamed. You're the pastor, for God's sake. And I do mean for God's sake. He wants you there. Who's going to lead the meeting? Actually, Ray knew that with or without him, Jim Benson would be leading the meeting. Jim was the chairman of the elder board and a good man. Ray had had the wisdom to not only share the burden of leadership with the elder board, but to protect himself by not being its chairman. Ray wasn't looking forward to that phone call. Hi, Jim, it's Ray. By the way, I know you're a volunteer and I'm paid to be there, but I won't be at the meeting tonight. Okay, great, gotta go. There was no way to make it sound good. Maybe I could tell him I'm sick, Ray thought. 
Sure, why not compound my lack of leadership with a lack of integrity, too? No, the only thing to do was to call Jim and tell him the truth. Tell him that when his pastor faced the toughest leadership decision of his career, he boldly stepped forward and went to a ball game. What a loser, Ray said out loud without thinking. The ring of the cell phone sounded like an alarm announcing a prison break. Ray looked at the caller ID, Jim Benson. Great, I've been caught. Barely over the wall, and I'm going back in, he thought. Hi, this is Ray, he answered. Ray, Jim Benson. Hi, Jim, how are you? I'm fine, Jim said. Listen, I know this is last minute, but I've talked to almost all the guys on the board, and it looks like we're going to be a little short on attendance tonight. Really, Jim? How short? A small ray of hope flickered. Well, Rick Stevens will be there, even though he's not on the board, but with him it looks like there will only be two. Two? Ray's mind raised. How could Jim already know that he wasn't coming? I'm sorry, Ray, Jim finally said. I know it's a big meeting, but something has come up and I can't be there either. I hate it. I really do. You mean none of the elders can be there, Ray asked, trying to disguise his great relief? I don't believe it. I know it, Ray. I'm embarrassed to even call myself the chairman. I understand if you wanted me to resign. What? Oh, no, I don't want you to give it another thought, Ray said. I know I won't. We'll just regroup for next month's meeting and cover everything then. Could you do me a little favor, Jim? You name it. Could you call Rick and tell him that we're postponing the meeting? Ray knew he should make the call, but he couldn't pass up the chance to leverage Jim's guilt. No problem. I'll call him as soon as we're done, Jim said graciously. So graciously that now it was Ray who felt guilty. Thanks again for understanding, Ray. I'll talk to you later. What kind of pastor would I be if I weren't understanding, Ray said, surprisingly without choking. I'll talk to you soon. It took a couple of minutes for the full impact of the conversation to hit Ray. Not only was he getting to go to a great ball game, he was avoiding the embarrassing situation of showing up at a difficult meeting without answers. I still need the answers, he thought, but I'll think about that later. God has granted me a reprieve, and I intend on taking the night off. Ray had rarely been more wrong. Chapter 2. Throwing Strikes It was almost game time when Ray arrived at the ballpark. Traffic was still bad and hopes of seeing the first pitch were fading. He tried Joe's cell phone but only got his voicemail. I hope he doesn't decide to not show. Just my luck. Ray decided not to finish the thought. Considering the recent turn of events at this point, the game could be rained out and Ray would still consider himself a lucky man. It was strange, though, that the entire board would suddenly be busy. No more strange, Ray decided, than a grown man making a last-second U-turn to avoid a meeting that he had called. I must be more confused than I thought, Ray admitted to himself. Unaccustomed to the new ballpark, Ray gave the attendant the parking pass that had come with his ticket. This is for the gold lot, sir. Turn right here and through that gate. You have a great time. Ray turned into the gate, and suddenly the traffic disappeared. He was on an open driveway, and in two minutes he was literally in the shadow of the stadium. Seeing the start of the game was looking more promising. Another parking attendant signaled for Ray to stop and approach the car. This is where I get sent to the Siberia lot, Ray thought. Good evening, sir, the young man said. Welcome to Visiontel Stadium. I'll be glad to park your car. Please hold on to this ticket, and we'll return the car to this spot after the game. Joe must have better connections than I thought. 
Glancing at the toys and occasional wayward French fries scattered on the floorboard, Ray self-consciously turned the keys over to the young man. I bet you're not used to a ride like this one. No, sir, the young man smiled. What's the best way to get to my seat? Ray showed him the ticket. Straight through that door. Just show the lady the ticket and she'll direct you. Ray made his way toward the door with the sign above it that read, Restricted Access. This must be a mistake, he thought. Good evening, sir. May I see your ticket? Ray handed his ticket to the lady at the door. I may be in the wrong place, he explained. Oh, no, sir. Please follow me. She led Ray down a long corridor. Not too much further, she said as they approached another door. Here we are. She opened the door, and the sound of the ballpark came flooding in. The persistent buzz of the crowd and the organ music on the PA system mingled with the nostalgic smell of popcorn, peanuts, and beer. Ray found himself in the field-level section. "'May I see your ticket, sir?' a female attendant asked. Ray obliged. "'This way, sir.' Ray followed as the attendant led him down the aisle, past row after row. The green grass was close enough to smell, and the voices of the players could be heard as they called out to one another. Ray was finally ushered to one of the only two seats left on this side of the railing. One more step, and he would be on the field. "'Can I get you anything else, sir?' Is there more? Ray responded without thinking. The attendant smiled as if she was accustomed to delivering mere mortals into baseball heaven. Enjoy the game, she said. If you want anything, a server will take your order. A server will take my order, he thought. And to think, I almost missed this to go to a board meeting. The thought of the meeting reminded Ray that there was a harsh reality out there waiting for him after the game. A reality that right now was filled with more questions than answers. Why can't real life be like a ball game, he thought. Excuse me, excuse me, but I can't get to my seat. The voice startled Ray from his thoughts. He had been so awed by his surroundings and newfound status that he hadn't heard the gentleman the first time. I'm sorry, Ray said. Oh, no problem. It's an amazing place, isn't it? The older man said as he sat down and looked around the park. Ray realized there were no more open seats nearby, and the one he had assumed was for Joe was now taken. Are you sure you have the right section? Ray asked the question as if he was a regular. Oh, yes, I'm pretty sure, the man replied. Row one, seat one, and you are Ray, aren't you? Now the sublime had become surreal. Customer service was one thing, but now Ray was entering the twilight zone. Have we met? He asked the older man. My name is Pete. I'm a friend of Joe's. He told me you'd be here. So Joe won't be here tonight? Well, you never know with Joe. He didn't tell you about me, did he? Obviously not. Ray didn't try to hide his confusion or his disappointment. Well, I hope you still enjoy the game, Pete said. It should be a good one. What do you do for a living, Ray? Now, Ray was a little embarrassed by his response to Pete. I'm a a pastor at a church near here. A pastor, huh? I think Joe did mention that, although he's never sent me a pastor before. This could be interesting. Of course, it could be a waste of time, too. No. Would you like a hot dog or a beer? Oh, uh, of course you don't want a beer, Pete said, laughing. How about a soft drink? If this night gets any stranger, I might take you up on that beer. But for now, a bottle of water would be great. Pete glanced over his shoulder, and instantly an attendant was there to take the order. Ray was impressed by the immediate attention that this unimpressive man received. Not that there was anything wrong with Pete. There was just nothing special about him. He looked to be in his mid-sixties, slightly overweight and balding with gray hair. His eyes were very clear, though, like the eyes of a much younger man. 
Just what is it that you do, Pete? He finally asked. Oh, a little of this, a little of that. Ray couldn't help but think that his job description pretty much summed up his appearance. The attendant quickly returned with her order. Here you are, Mr. Harlan. Can I get you anything else? Not right now, Jenny, but thanks. Pete? Harlan? Ray thought. I know I've heard that name before, but where? A young man came out of the dugout and handed Pete a pair of binoculars. Then it hit him. You're Peter J. Harlan, Ray said more than asked. You own the team. So I've heard, Pete replied. Around here, though, I'm just a fan like anyone else. Except I get the best seats, don't you think? Suddenly, it all made sense. The valet parking, the great seats, the quick service. No wonder Joe kept insisting that he come to the game. But why? Joe was a good friend, but there had to be more to it than that. Mr. Harlan, can I ask Pete? Call me Pete. Very well. Pete, you said earlier that he had never sent you a pastor before. What did you mean? You caught that, did you? Sometimes my mouth pops the clutch before my mind gets in gear. You see, Ray, I have a passion for creating winning organizations. I've done it in business for years. In fact, that's why I bought this baseball team. I love to see a group of people working together toward a common vision, and I've had some success in doing it. That's an understatement, Ray said. Harlan Enterprises was one of the most successful corporations in the area. Real estate, manufacturing, data processing, and storage were just a few of the markets he had dominated. I know your track record, Mr. Harlan. Pete held up his hand to stop him. It's Pete, remember? I know your track record, Pete, but what does that have to do with my being here? Well, from time to time, Joe brings me a young leader who he feels could gain something from my experience. I like to meet with them and find out what's going on and see if I can help. Joe obviously thinks I have something to offer you. How about a big contribution to the building fund, he wanted to say. It made him nervous to sit so close to a man who could end all his financial troubles with one check. Ray decided to ignore the fact that Joe thought he could use some help, but he couldn't so quickly dismiss the doubt that this businessman could help a pastor. So I'm the first pastor Joe's ever brought you, he finally said. Well, at least we'll see a good game. You seem unsure about the value of our time together, Ray. Ray's expression had given away more than he thought. It's not that I'm uncertain. It's just I don't know if you have any clear understanding of what it takes to run a church. Well, as long as you're not uncertain, Pete replied with a hint of sarcasm. He had seen this before. The first step was always the most difficult, getting a young leader to recognize that before circumstances could change, he might have to change. It seems to me that church work is a lot like any other business. You have product, you have customers, and you have salesmen. The only difference is that you have God on your side, and that should make it easier, right? You'd think so, wouldn't you? Ray said. His vision of a relaxing night off was beginning to fade. The last thing he wanted to keep thinking about was his inability to run his church, even with God's help. But before he could say anything, Pete broke the silence. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your church, Ray? So Ray gave Pete the brochure copy tour of Meadowland Community Church. He talked about the years of growth, the variety of ministries, and the growing facility. The family atmosphere among the congregation sounded almost too good to be true, and some of it was. Obviously, Joe thought there was room for improvement, but Ray could figure it out without Pete's help. After all, why should he share his struggles with a man he barely knew and who obviously knew no struggles? 
It sounds like a great place, Ray. I can't imagine why Joe wanted us to meet, Pete said. I was wondering the same thing. Ray tried not to sound too defensive. Well, why don't we just hang out together and watch the game? If it's okay with you, I might offer a few insights as the night goes on. It's your ball game, Ray said, not fully appreciating the irony of the statement. It is, isn't it, Pete said. Ray, I need you to do me a favor. What's that? In a moment, a man is going to walk over here with a baseball. I need you to take it out to the mound and throw it to the catcher. You want what? Ray sputtered. You want me to throw out the first pitch? Call it an owner's privilege. But yeah, I want you to throw out the first pitch. But one more thing, Ray. I want you to throw a strike. Before Ray had time to think about it, a man wearing a team jacket came over and handed him a hat and a brand new baseball. It had been years since Ray held one, having graduated on to the safer, more age-appropriate softball. He felt the seams between his fingers as he began to consider which pitch he would throw. A two-seam fastball seemed the obvious choice since it was the only pitch Ray knew how to throw. In a daze, he made his way to the mound. As his name and image appeared on the jumbotron, the stadium grew a little louder as the crowd anticipated the start of the game and the possibility that this unknown man in slacks and a button-down dress shirt would bounce a pitch to the backstop. This game is on ESPN, Ray's mind screamed as he stood on the mound. One screw up and I'll land in the Sports Center Hall of Shame. As if in slow motion, the catcher squatted behind the plate and motioned to Ray to let her fly. Without thinking and without stretching, Ray drew his arm back and did his best John Moltz impersonation. He watched as the ball fluttered with an unschmaltz-like velocity towards the plate and fell neatly, if not powerfully, into the catcher's mitt. The crowd cheered, as much in relief that the game could start as it was a favorable response to Ray's handiwork. Ray, on the other hand, was pumped. He bounced off the mound and removed his cap in a grand gesture of appreciation. He shook the catcher's hand, and after the obligatory photo that Ray would hang on his office wall forever, he headed toward his seat. Not bad, Pete said as Ray arrived. I wasn't certain you had a clear understanding of what it takes to throw a baseball. Ray got the point immediately and decided to accept the mild criticism without comment. After all, he was a guest, and he had just thrown a strike in the show. Chapter 3. Keeping Score. Ray, what was your goal when you headed out into the field just now? Pete asked. Well, beyond not falling down and making a fool out of myself, I guess it was to throw a strike. Why? Because you asked me to. And you did it, didn't you? Yeah, I guess I did. How does it feel? Pretty good, I guess. Ray wasn't sure where this was headed, but he hoped that Pete wasn't one of those positive thinkers who talked about visualizing world peace. Right about now, Ray was visualizing a quick dash for the parking lot if the conversation got too strange. It's a funny thing, Ray. People like to win. Ray looked around for the fortune cookie that had given Pete that gem. Ray, when was the last time you left a church service or a meeting feeling the way you did when you left that mound just now? When's the last time you won at church? Ray was stunned. He wanted to tell this pompous, not a care in the world billionaire just what he thought. The problem was, Ray didn't know what he thought. He only knew that it had been years since he had felt that kind of excitement about his ministry. It's okay, Ray. The truth is, I set you up. I know this is a lousy trick, but it works every time. 
The problem is that right now you're thinking you're not a winner, but that's really not your problem. Confused but curious, Ray asks, then what is my problem? When you went out to that mound, it was to throw a strike, right? Right. You knew that to win, you had to throw a strike. Your problem is you don't know what a win is at your church, do you? Well, Ray began slowly, it's a lot of things. It's a good service on Sunday morning and a good children's program. It's missions and music and a lot of things that are a little more complicated than throwing a baseball. Pete could see Ray's frustration growing. You're right. A win at church is more complicated. So knowing what a win looks like is all the more important. What do you see out there in right field just above the Home Depot sign? The scoreboard? Right. Nothing but zeros up right now. But what's going to happen every time one of our players crosses home plate? We'll score a run. Right. And a run will go on the board and we'll be ahead. And all of these people will cheer. But we don't have a scoreboard in the sanctuary, and the only plate that we have is an offering plate, and I can assure you that no one cheers when we pass it. Pete laughed. That much I remember about church. The point is, Ray, you need to know when you're getting ahead, and your people need to know when to cheer. That's the first step. Clarify the win. There's not a player on that field right now who's confused about his goal. They may not reach it, but they know what it is. If you give good people a clear goal, then most of the time they'll work like dogs to get there. But if the goal is unclear, they're forced to guess, or worse, decide for themselves what a win really is. The truth of the matter is that with or without a goal, you're going to work hard to get somewhere. That's the thing about leaders. They lead. The question is, are they getting where you want them to go? Ray thought about Rick Stevens. Rick was a leader, and he was leading Ray right into an unwanted job as school principal. Ray had never thought about this as being his own fault, though. It was easier to blame Rick and to focus on his ulterior motives. It could be that Rick Stevens was just leading in a direction that no one had told him not to. Ray had to admit that it was difficult to tell when things were working well at the church. Multiple programs meant multiple problems and much-needed solutions. Further difficulties were created when a solution in one area caused more problems in another. So, how do you do it, he asked. How do you clarify the win? Just ask yourself, what is the most important thing? And it will start to become clear. For our team, it's winning baseball games. Sure, I'm here to make money, but the easiest way to make money in baseball is by winning. So what is it for you, Ray? What's most important? Pete thought this might be a good time for a deep breath and a hot dog. He motioned for the attendant and with a simple nod of his head ordered his guest and himself the usual. The two men sat and watched as the home team took the field and the game began. Change lives, Ray finally said. What's that, Ray? You ask what the win is. It's a life that's been changed. That's a win. Well, there you go, Ray. From what you've told me, things are going pretty well at your church. If you'd like, we can just sit back and enjoy the game. Ray wasn't sure what had just happened, but he knew that he wouldn't be enjoying the game. Of course, life change was the goal. He had been called to make disciples. This was not news to Ray. His original doubts about the value of this conversation were beginning to rise again. You said clarifying the win was the first step, 
Just how many steps are there? Seven, Pete said matter-of-factly, watching the action on the field. They're not all steps. Think of them as practices. Seven practices, Ray asked. Seven practices for effective business. Or in your case, I guess, effective ministry. I've watched these seven practices work in a variety of situations. And apparently, Joe thinks they can help you too. But, like I said, it's no big deal to me if you just want to watch the game and enjoy the evening. This was music to Ray's ears. A nice, relaxing evening was all he really wanted. So Ray was surprised to hear himself saying, If the first practice was clarifying the win, what's the second one? At this point, we'll skip forward to the corresponding section in part two. Part two being putting the seven practices to work. I'll begin by reading the introduction and then read chapter 10, which corresponds with chapter three of clarifying the win. Part two, introduction, a dilemma. Ray's struggle is far too common in the lives of today's church leaders. Ray signed up for ministry to make a difference, to accomplish something that was larger than himself, to see lives change, to know that his investment would somehow count for eternity. He shared the same passion that drives most people to do what they do in ministry. But somewhere along his journey, Ray embraced an organizational strategy that was unhealthy for his church. He woke up one morning to the realization that his church had gradually become something quite different from what he had set out to create. Ray's energy and love for ministry was being sapped by an organization that seemed to have taken on a life of its own, and it was moving in directions beyond his control. Like a disillusioned ball player, Ray longed for the simplicity of an earlier time, and he desperately wanted to rediscover his passion to play a game he loved. The Problem with Competing Systems Several years ago, I, Reggie, was in the process of transferring an entire decade of important files to a new computer when I booted up my old Macintosh and found myself staring at a strange icon. Instead of the familiar smiling Mac, there was a frowning image glaring back at me. I knew enough about computers to know I was in trouble. My hard drive had crashed and the situation was potentially critical. Fearing that countless outlines, financial records, personal information, studies, and reports had been lost forever, I raced to the nearest computer clinic. I nervously watched as two trained technicians took turns trying to access my damaged file. When they decided to take a break for lunch, I remained behind, determined to figure out the problem. Unsure where to begin, I pressed the button that released the CD tray. There, I discovered something I had noticed my youngest daughter playing with earlier that day. The CD in the tray contained an outdated application that I had recently discarded for a newer program. My daughter had obviously found the disk and tried to load it onto my computer. When the technicians returned, they quickly analyzed the disk and found it also contained an older version of my computer's operating system. They explained that my computer had crashed because of what they called a systems conflict. The operating system is the invisible part of a computer that determines how the computer functions. It provides the computer with an internal code that drives its behavior. It sends signals to the hard disk to control how it looks and performs. If you try to boot up a computer with competing signals from two different systems, the computer becomes unstable and has a mental breakdown. In some ways, your church is like a computer. There is an operating system that runs in the background of everything your church does. This operating system continually sends signals that basically determine how programs are designed, how ministry is organized, how communicators teach, how your target audience is reached, and how daily decisions are made. 
This internal code holds the key to the behavior and appearance of your entire organization. If I were to spend some significant time at your church, chances are that I would learn a lot about your system. I would hear your language, listen to your questions, and watch what you practice. Sooner or later, I would discover what really drives you. Churches are notorious for creating competing systems, wherein unclear direction and conflicting information threaten to cause a breakdown and paralyze the ministry. Instead of replacing old systems, we tend to just download and add whatever is new to what already exists. Soon, our capacity becomes fragmented and we find ourselves confronted with the signs of ineffectiveness. Some ministries seem routine and irrelevant. The teaching feels too academic. Calendars are saturated with mediocre programs. Staff members pull in opposite directions. Volunteers lack motivation. Departments viciously compete for resources. And it becomes harder and harder to figure out if we are really being successful. Too many churches desperately need an upgrade. They need to reformat their hard drives and install a clean system. They need to rewrite the code so everyone is clear about what is important and how they should function. Creating a common language. Imagine the advantage you would have if everyone in your church operated on the basis of the same internal code. What if every volunteer and every staff member understood that certain practices were critical to the success of your mission and that these practices were an essential part of the style and culture of your ministry? Now, what if you could somehow shape these principles into words and phrases that could be effectively integrated into the language of your ministry? Simple statements that would instantly remind the players on your team how and why they do what they do. During our formative years, the six people who founded North Point Community Church developed what have become known as the Seven Practices of Effective Ministry. We had spent numerous hours writing a mission statement, clarifying our values and drawing up diagrams of our ministry strategy. Our vision and values were basic enough that they could be framed and put on the walls of just about any evangelical church. But we felt the need to craft a series of succinct action statements that would communicate our own unique approach to ministry. We would restate our strategy in terms that would keep our leaders on the same page and help them to establish practices that would continue to replicate and infuse the DNA that made our style of ministry distinct. We were trying to establish a language that our leaders could use to coach future volunteers and staff in a unique way of doing church. It is important to understand exactly why these practices were developed and what they are but it is also important to understand what they are not. The seven practices for effective ministry are not church growth principles, but they definitely make an impact on how we grow. They are not the same as our mission, but they are strategic in helping us accomplish our mission. They are not the same as our values, but they determine how we apply our core values. They are not theological principles, but they complement our passion to teach truth with relevance. They are not the only practices, but they have become some of the most critical practices of our church. These seven practices have helped us to protect the simplicity of our organization, keep our staff and volunteers moving in the same direction, create environments that are focused and relevant, evaluate the success of our ministries and programs, export our style of ministry to new and existing churches. A brief disclaimer. The principles and practices described in this book are not and cannot be a substitute for God's blessing or power. It is important that every church operate from a clear vision and establish values that keep everyone in tune with the overall direction of the organization. 
It is equally important to have a clear strategy so that the church can harness its God-given resources and talent to accomplish its unique mission. Establishing certain practices will increase the effectiveness of your ministry and programs, but vision, values, and strategy are not nearly as important to your success as being in sync with what God desires to do in your church. Chapter 10, Practice Number 1, Clarify the Win. Define what is important at every level of the organization. Turner Field in Atlanta stands as a monument to the fact that people will pay money to participate with a team that wins. The -the state-of-the-art stadium was opened two years after the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. Many who grew up watching the then-lowly Braves remember the days when a scant few thousand people would attend games on the old Fulton County Stadium and foul balls would bounce around empty seats. Today, fans pack out a 49,000-seat stadium to watch one of the most successful teams in baseball play. Everyone wants to be part of a winning team, but the reverse is also true. People tend to stop showing up when an organization is not winning. Nothing will empty seats faster than a losing streak. Players can complain about fair-weather fans, and owners can pour millions into slick ad campaigns, but the best way to fill seats is to win. How do you know when a baseball team is winning? It's obvious. An enormous scoreboard is placed at the center of the stadium so the crowd and players can see how their team is doing. Most organizations recognize the need to have some type of scoreboard. Public companies post third quarter gains. Schools report their students' aggregate test scores. Television networks have their Nielsen ratings. In these scenarios, the score is obvious, and there are consequences if an organization is not winning. If a company loses too much money, it goes out of business. If test scores fall below an acceptable level, a school loses its accreditation. If a TV series lags in the ratings, it gets pulled off the air. Keeping score helps everyone involved stay informed about the condition of the organization. It's just that in some organizations, it's easier to know whether or not you're winning. How do you know, for example, if a church is winning? The very nature of what a church does makes it difficult to keep score. How do you create a scoreboard that measures intangibles like relevant teaching and change lives? There's an old wooden sign in the church my dad grew up in. It still hangs on the left wall behind the pulpit. Maybe you've seen one like it. The sign has slats that display numbers announcing the church's critical statistics. There's a column for last week and a column for this week. Every Sunday you can check out how things are progressing in these three areas. Attendance, the number of visitors, and total offerings. I can remember as a kid looking up at those numbers and thinking, things are getting better, or during some weeks, things are getting worse. That sign has been hanging there for at least 30 years, but I'm not sure it truly communicates whether or not the church is actually winning. Most churches do not have a reliable system for defining and measuring what success looks like at every level of the organization. Instead, they post some general statistics that give them a vague sense of progress or failure as a church and they go through the motions of continuing to do ministry the way they always have, productive or not. Thus, it is possible for a church to become very efficient at doing ministry ineffectively. How do you measure success? At a recent conference, I was in an elevator and overheard one young pastor ask another, how many do you average in attendance on Sunday? And what is your monthly budget? Basically, the young pastor was asking his friend, what's the score, right or wrong, He had a predetermined idea about how to measure success in ministry. 
Too many church leaders have bought into the myth that to clarify the win means establishing attendance goals and raising a lot of money. These can certainly be indicators about the health of your organization, but strong numbers in these areas do not necessarily mean you are winning. At North Point, we have never set attendance goals, and we rarely promote financial targets. A different set of questions comes to mind when we talk about what it means to win. For example, do attendees feel comfortable inviting their unchurched friends? Are members recognizing the need to give a percentage of their income? How many individuals are successfully connecting to small groups? Do our people understand how to apply the scriptural truths we're teaching in their daily lives? Clarifying the win simply means communicating to your team what is really important and what really matters. Asking certain questions, rewarding an individual's performance, celebrating significant outcomes, these are all part of clarifying the win. Practicing this principle means that you are intentional about defining a win so that you don't accidentally communicate the wrong win or keep your team guessing about what is really important. The best way to leverage the collective power of your team is to make sure that everyone knows what it means to score. When you don't clarify the win. Nothing hinders morale more than when team members with separate agendas are pulling against one another. When this happens, it's usually because those in charge have not taken the time necessary to clarify the win for their team. As long as the win is unclear, you force your team to guess what a win looks like. One distinguishing feature that makes a church different from most organizations is the number of volunteers required to fulfill its mission. Generally, volunteers want to do what the church wants them to do. But problems occur when the volunteers try to score runs in foggy conditions. Without clear direction, they are forced to chart their own course or follow whoever seems to have the best plan at the moment. Our experience is that most volunteers do not have personal agendas or any desire to create conflict. They just want to know where to get in line so they can help. But if they are allowed to wander in the wrong direction for long, most volunteers will ultimately give up. Why? Because people don't like to lose. They like to win. Every one of us has a God-given itch to belong to something that is bigger than ourselves. Volunteers need to know that their investment of time is going to make a difference. They will work hard and make incredible sacrifices as long as they know what the goal is and that what they're doing actually counts. They simply desire to find meaning and significance in their work. No one likes to go through the motions just doing menial tasks. Everyone needs to clearly understand what they are accomplishing. Statistics suggest that volunteerism in the church is declining. One frequent question we are asked by other churches is, how do you recruit and keep volunteers? Part of the answer is that we clarify the win. Countless individuals quit working in churches every year because they simply do not feel like they are winning. If the win is unclear, you may force those in leadership roles to define winning on their own terms. Sometimes pastors make the mistake of thinking that they should spend more time with younger leaders and less time with stronger leaders. And it seems logical that stronger leaders should require less supervision. But when you fail to give a strong leader clear direction, you give that person permission to go in whatever direction seems right. If you don't define winning for your ministry leaders, they will define it for themselves. Why? Because they are leaders and they're used to winning. It doesn't take very long for leaders to take over a class, start a new program, begin an innovative ministry, and rally a crowd to follow them. They may only be 10 degrees off track, but given enough time, they will miss the target by miles. It's not that they are intentionally being defiant or difficult, they're just being leaders. 
but countless leaders have innocently sabotaged their church by leading people in the wrong direction. And the fault lies with an organization that has not been systematic about defining and clarifying what a win really is. Sidebar, Winning with Kids from North Point's Playbook. A few years into developing our children's small group program, we realized that some of our leaders were not connecting relationally with the kids. A number of our leaders were convinced they were doing a good job. Since the win had not been clearly defined, they defined a win themselves based on what they had done in other churches. There were some great reports. Bible stories were being taught each week. A lot of kids were attending. The activities and lessons seemed to be working. Countless details were being managed efficiently. But many of the leaders didn't feel like they were winning at all, and they were becoming frustrated. They had signed up as leaders to connect with kids, but many of our kids were not developing quality relationships with their small group leaders, which was a primary objective for our Upstreet Kids program. Some were attending different groups every week. We had classes, but we didn't really have groups. That's because group life was just not a real priority with our leaders and parents. And so we were forced to recast the vision and clearly explain what a win looked like. This required us to redefine the roles of our volunteers, spotlight key leaders who were modeling the correct way to lead groups, and encourage parents to bring their kids to a consistent hour. We actually removed the worship and Bible story responsibility from most of our leaders so they could focus on one thing, connecting with the kids in small groups. In the end, it took more than a year and a lot of communication with our leaders before staff started feeling like we were really winning at Upstreet. But if we had clarified the win for our leaders earlier, we could have avoided a lot of unnecessary conflict. The Advantages of Clarifying the Win Whenever we discuss the strategy and growth of North Point with leaders from other churches, someone always asks if we had an advantage because we started with a blank page. There are definitely some advantages when you start from scratch. We had no existing programs, minimal staff, and no charter members reminding us, quote, how we used to do things, unquote. But having a blank page advantage is not clearly as important as having a same page advantage. When you clarify the win, you help your team stay on the same page. During our first few years, the six members of our leadership team made a deliberate attempt to keep everyone on the same page. We spent agonizing hours clarifying the win in numerous areas, at times debating seemingly insignificant issues. Looking back, we are convinced that many of those decisions were strategic in keeping our staff and leaders aligned in the months and years that followed. You see, misalignment usually happens gradually, and if it goes unchecked, it can wreak havoc on an organization. Like the wheels on a car pulling against each other, misalignment will ultimately ruin the tires, wear out the engine, and waste enormous amounts of fuel. Misalignment is sometimes just a natural result of growth. People start showing up and they join your church with pictures of what they think church should look like. From the time they walk through the door, they start trying to conform your church to the image of their own picture. Maybe they are expecting adult classes every Sunday morning, a different style of music, or a women's ministry. Before long, these well-meaning people can begin moving your church in a different direction. Effective leaders constantly hold up clear pictures of what the church is supposed to be so that everyone understands what it is not supposed to be. When you clarify the win, you can manage your resources more effectively. We may have had the advantage of starting with a blank page, but as our administrator Rick Holliday often pointed out, that doesn't mean we had a blank check. 
Rick has always done a great job of helping us figure out how to best use the limited resources we've been given to achieve maximum results. Every church must face this challenge. In the early days of a church, it means the leadership must decide what programs to start first. As a church grows and the organization becomes more complex, it means they have to decide how to divide their resources among multiple ministries. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, Luke 16.10 says. We believe this also applies collectively to the church, and yet most of us are aware of programs that have been funded for years but have made little to no real impact. That's one more reason it is important to understand what is and what is not working. When you clarify the win, it creates the potential for positive momentum. When you have established a culture where the win is clear, the wins tend to happen more frequently. There is a lot to be said for the energetic atmosphere that happens when an organization wins consistently. Winning often triggers a chain reaction. When people learn what winning feels like, it becomes easier for them to win. That's what we call momentum. Momentum is actually just a series of wins. When someone says, we need to keep up the momentum, they are actually saying, we need to keep winning. One high school girls basketball coach kept his team from playing official games for an entire year because they were a young team, and he didn't want them to lose so many games that the girls became programmed to lose. Winning motivates a team. As long as they are winning, people will give you their time, their money, and their hearts. And when you are winning consistently, the staff and volunteers in your organization tend to work harder, be less negative, trust the leadership, give more generously, and stay involved. Four steps to clarifying the win. If you hope to clarify the win for your team, you have to take the time to define what is important at every level of the organization. Here are four steps to help you clarify the win and establish winning as a habit in your organization. Number one, sum up the win in a simple phrase. When you formally state the win and put it in front of the entire team, it becomes a lens through which you can view everything you do. In baseball, the win is simply to score by crossing the home plate. Therefore, a good hitter doesn't step up to home plate worried about his batting average. He just wants to get on base or knock in a run. A good pitcher doesn't pitch in order to have a great ERA. He is passionate about keeping the batter from getting a hit or driving in a run. Everything that is done on the field is either an attempt to score or prevent the opponent from scoring. And each player's unique contribution is measured against what is ultimately seen on the scoreboard. When everyone on the team clearly understands the goal, it changes how they do what they do. For example, our Inside Out High School program, a win happens when a student has a meaningful interaction and discusses life-changing principles within the context of a small group. So, at Inside Out, everything that is done is measured against how to, it gets students to connect in small groups. The host needs to be aware of those who need to get connected to a group and creatively communicate the importance of group life. So the win for the host happens when students choose to get connected in a group. The worship leader should strive to create an atmosphere that prepares students to hear the message. So the win for worship happens when students participate and their hearts become open to truth. The speaker is positioning the message to set up small group time. So the win for the speaker is measured by how well students discuss the teaching during their group time. Those preparing refreshments help to provide a more informal time for the students to connect. So the win for those who cook is indicated by how many of the students hang around after group time and keep talking. In the end, if students participate in an effective small group, we win. If they do not, we lose. Sidebar, a key question from North Point's playbook. 
In our creative meetings, we will sometimes ask the question, what do we want people to walk away and do? The answer to that question can clear up a lot of confusion about the goal of a program and force us to clarify the win. One of the first programs we started at North Point was called Kid Stuff. It was designed to create a shared experience for kids and parents that could be a catalyst for family time in the home. By specifically asking what do we want parents to walk away and do, we were able to clarify one of the primary goals of Kid Stuff to inspire parents to continue to teach their kids about character and faith throughout the week. That decision started everyone thinking in the same direction. If the elements of our program only targeted children, then we could never expect parents to be more than spectators. Our drama, music, and video had to be created with parents in mind. Scripts and jokes had to include messages for adults. Segments of the program were designed to spotlight parents. We also had to become strategic and deliberate about providing parents tools to help them win as spiritual leaders in their homes. Every aspect of Kid Stuff was reevaluated on the basis of how it engaged parents to discuss principles with their kids during the week. We became the only church around that posted signs saying no drop-offs. Kids must be accompanied by adults. Back to the four steps. Number two, keep a win as specific as possible. Don't confuse defining what a win looks like with establishing a mission statement. There is an important distinction between the two. A mission statement is sometimes too general. It is more like a compass. It may be helpful to keep an organization moving in the right direction, but it does not necessarily ensure effectiveness. A mission statement is easy to manipulate and its impact difficult to measure. In fact, it is possible for any organization to be fulfilling its mission and actually losing to the competition at the same time. When you clarify the win, it is like marking a specific destination on a map. It's easy to know when you win because you arrive at your desired destination. Maybe you've heard this business aphorism. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. A lot of churches claim to reach more people every year, yet according to national statistics, the church is rapidly declining in attendance and losing its influence in our nation. The fact is, a lot of churches are just not clear about where they are aiming, and so it's easy to convince themselves and everyone else they are hitting something. When you have drawn a clear and specific target, it becomes obvious when you hit or miss your mark. Ron Blue gave us some good advice during the early days of our church. He said, you can't manage what you can't measure. Don't make the mistake of clarifying a win in terms that are too general. When you do, you cheat everyone in your organization and you fail to establish an effective way to measure your success. Number three, restate the win frequently and creatively. Once you have carefully defined a win for a department or program, you need to spend time keeping it in front of your team. It is easy to become distracted or preoccupied with secondary issues, and there will always be competing signals that sneak into your organization. So good leaders develop the habit of reminding everyone and each other what's really important. Next time you're at a ball game, listen to the coaches. They are constantly instructing the players, and they encourage the players to talk to each other. That's because communication is key to winning. Good teams communicate during every play of the game so everybody knows what they must do at any given time. We learned early in the life of our church how critical it was to keep the win in front of our leaders. Some of those attending assumed a win meant creating the same kind of programming they had experienced at another church. Others measured winning by how quickly we could acquire our own building. 
The more consistent we were at communicating the win for every program and department, the easier it was to keep our leaders and volunteers from taking unintended detours. Whatever we are using as a scoreboard needs to be in constant view of our leaders. Countless organizations paste on their walls meaningless phrases that never stick in the hearts of their leaders because the words never become part of their everyday language. If you want your leaders to buy into it, you have to keep finding creative ways to clarify the win. There are a number of ways a church can continually restate the win for its staff and volunteers, such as posted on creative boards and in planning rooms as a constant reminder of what they are trying to accomplish. Establish strategic questions that you ask every meeting to help leaders keep thinking about the win. Use creative videos to document a specific win and illustrate it with comments from those who attended the program. Script it into your announcements and promotions so everyone can hear it. Brand it into every environment by creating taglines that reinforce it. Strive to say the same thing over and over in different ways. You can't establish the win one time and expect it to stick. People need to hear it and see it constantly. An aside, telling your story from North Point's playbook. Every time we baptize a person at North Point, we use the opportunity to restate and communicate in a creative way what a win looks like in our organization. We do this by showing a video testimony in which the person tells the story of how God's love played out in his or her life. As the individual professes faith in Christ, key people in the church are often thanked and certain environments, such as Starting Point, are acknowledged. These stories reinforce that the purpose for everything we do as a church is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people tell us they are uncomfortable and would prefer to be baptized without the video. We kindly but firmly explain that the impact of each person's story is too great not to share it with our congregation. In fact, this practice is so effective that we have built an entire event around the baptism of our children and students called the birthday celebration. In fairness, I must point out that we got the idea of shooting video testimonies from a small church in our area. We should always be on the lookout for creative ways to communicate the win. Back to the four steps. Number four, meet to clarify the win at every level. Most organizations have written clever mission statements and carefully crafted values, but few organizations have summed up in a simple phrase what a win looks like at every level of the organization. You can't stop at the top of the organization. The principle will only help you become more effective if the practice is carried through to the levels where practical ministry is happening. It's not enough to ask, what does a win look like for the church? It's not enough to ask, what does a win look like for the student ministry? It's not enough to ask, what does a win look like for the Inside Out High School program? You should also ask, what does a win look like for the Inside Out small group time? Knowing the score. A church really does need a scoreboard. When you establish clarify the win as a practice in your organization, you position everyone in your team to keep moving in the same direction. You provide a tool to measure and therefore manage what you do. When people know what a win looks like, they're much more likely to win. And when they start winning, chances are they'll keep winning because leaders like to win and they will attract others who want to join a winning team. And that concludes chapter 10. It ends with some discussion questions or prompts. We'll discuss these during our meeting. Improving your game. Here's the questions for you to think about. What was your last win? How did it affect attitudes throughout your organization? A mission or vision statement establishes a win in a general sense, but now it is time to get specific. 
Practice clarifying the win for a department, then for a program, then for a specific staff or leadership position, such as a small group leader. Name three areas where you feel it would be helpful in your organization to clarify the win. Discuss any areas in your organization where volunteers may be confused or frustrated because the win is unclear. Brainstorm some creative ways to communicate the win within your organization. And finally, encourage every department in your organization to plan an off-site gathering to clarify the win for each of their programs.